I wait? Are we ready? All right, I'm live. All right. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining us today uh, for this uh, very timely topic to discuss the novel coronavirus or SARS-CoV-2 if you're watching the, the medical media uh, and its impact that it is having on global supply chains. Um, and uh, this thing is making news not just because of uh, the disease that it causes, the COVID-19 disease, but also because it is affecting everything from the stock market to the stock levels on our store shelves. So we have a great panel for you to, um, to learn from this afternoon, to talk with. Uh, we're going to try and make this conversational. Um, so I will start by having them introduce themselves, and I'll start with David. Thank you, Kathy. Uh, my name is David Schillingford. I'm the chairman of Resilience 360. So we, uh, we're in the world of helping companies map out uh, their supply chains and understand risk in the future and risk being caused by present events. Hello, I'm John Paxton from MHI. I'm the current COO of MHI. And MHI, for all of you who don't know, is uh, puts on this trade show along with other areas to help the members in the material handling and supply chain space. I'm uh, Phil Palin. Uh, since 2008, I focused on supply chain resilience, especially supply chain resilience uh, to catastrophic events. Uh, starting in late December, early January, started trying to track what was happening in China, uh, both to understand what was happening in China, but also its implications for what it would do to supply chains as the virus departed uh, China and some of those implications. That's what we'll talk about. Great, thank you. So um, I'm gonna ask these guys a few questions and then uh, once I do, uh, we'll open it up to the floor. So just a, a few questions to get us started. David, why don't you just kind of give everybody a, a heads up on what's been happening and what is happening? What are you seeing? Sure. So in, in terms of the impacts that the coronavirus has been having on, on global supply chains, we, we think of it really on, on two sides. One is on the supply side, and the other is uh, around demand risk. There's, there's logistics risk, but that has primarily been, uh, up until now, more on the supply side disruptions. So as, as you all know, the, uh, the virus originated and the epicenter uh, is in China. So a lot of the uh, a lot of the disruptions, particularly from the supply chain, supply side, uh, are focused on China. Uh, China as uh, a major manufacturer of goods and also a source of, of raw materials. So uh, big focus on what is what is coming out of China, what isn't coming out of China. And w when we when we look at it, we're looking really not so much at the, at the virus. The virus is the primary cause of, of the supply chain impact. But the secondary causes, no, normally we'd be thinking of them as primary causes, it's financial distress, regulatory, compliance, uh, legal issues, all of these things are coming out of the coronavirus epidemic. So, for example, on the legal side, there's a lot of suppliers in China that have been issued with legal certificates called force majeure. And many of you will be familiar with that it essentially provides 
uh, a, a way of essentially getting out of certain contractual obligations. So any supplier, there's about 4,000 suppliers that we have tracked that have been issued with such a certificate. And it, it's important to know if your supplier has been issued with a certificate like that or not. Another risk that we look at is workforce risk, and that has been uh, a, a really big part of the story so far. A lot of migrant work in China, 300 million people going home for the Chinese New Year. How many of them have been able to come back? And of those who have come back, even if a factory is open, are they able to work? Or are they still in a 14-day quarantine? So we're tracking very carefully, not just whether or not a region is essentially open for business, but whether factories are open or not, and whether there is enough workforce in that factory to make that factory operational. And then you have the logistics, that ground transportation is, is still uh, very disrupted in China, but you've got the ports beginning to open now. And on the demand side, we had stores closing in China, a lot of those have reopened. You've got a huge impact to the luxury goods sales globally. Probably 100, 150 million Chinese will travel each year. They'll spend between them around $277 billion. That demand has essentially gone away, at, at least for now. And I think the, f the final thing I would say when we think about the demand patterns is as we see the virus spreading beyond China into other Asian countries, now into Europe, particularly Italy, and starting to spread in the US, we're starting to see demand risk growing, both in terms of physical people being quarantined or stores being closed, but also psychological, where people are changing their buying habits and that's starting to have a knock-on effect on logistics operations in, in the U.S. So, John, Phil, any follow-ups to that? Yes. Yeah, so, so with the um, the Chinese, uh, it, we see it as being a ripple effect. You know, it's they'll get back up and running with their factories, but then they can't get the truckers, and then they can't get the truckers. They get that handled, and then it moves to the ports. And uh, I see that um, you'll find the ripple will actually end up coming over to the companies here is once that demand picks up, then how do they handle it and digest the, the product that comes over. And uh, some of the things that we've seen recently are not only from the product and the parts moving, but also uh, think about personnel moving. So an example uh, that I was just talking earlier today with uh, Italy is that uh, a company has Italian workers that came over to install a project on their site. And imagine now they're, they're questioning whether they should be on their site or whether they should go back. And they have the technology to implement projects. So it's not only the, the supply chain of the products that, are, that you'll see, transportation is affected, but now the personnel side too. Bill? Uh, I won't be nearly as substantive as these two guys, but I will tell you that a container ship showed up at the port of Los Angeles. Now, you, uh, yesterday, you would think that this would be a non-event at the port of Los Angeles, except this container ship originated in China, and it was the first container ship to show up from China in almost 10 days at the port of Los Angeles, and it was sort of like the Navy coming into an 18th century port, and boy, were people excited. And I think the good news is that the kind of extraordinary supply and demand disruption that my colleagues describe, at least in terms of China, is now being released. It's slow, but it's coming. 
And that begins to give us the sense of a benchmark for how long our disruption is going to be. Yeah, so I'm going to ask you to dig into that a little bit. It's been slow, right? You, we talked about how long we've been watching uh, the effects from this, this virus and, and their, what it's doing to the shipping world. Um, what does that mean for the rest of us? What does it mean for the United States? What does it mean for other locations with China as the world's manufacturer? I may be a little bit of a contrarian and try to turn this into a good news story. <laughs> That's okay. Um, the, the issue that, um, I, I'll, I'll emphasize two elements of the Chinese response and potentially the implications for all, all, all of us here. One was, by the time that the Chinese very seriously and openly began engaging the problem in Wuhan that uh, David described, they may not have had any other choice but to shut down the country. To, in order to interrupt the transmission of this very contagious virus, they reluctantly but ultimately made a dramatic decision which uh, was incredibly disruptive to supply chains ipso facto. If we get to that point here, it will be incredibly difficult. It still won't be as difficult as they were having a time in China because of the timing of their decision. They made that decision just on the eve of their Lunar New Year. David referenced this. 300 million people left where they worked. And many, much higher percentage of those are workers because they were going back home during the Lunar New Year. They had already left to go home. They are now hundreds of miles away from their places of work. And that's when the transportation measures were put in place, totally separated from their places of work. That is not being repeated in Italy right now, even though Italy has just now gone into a nationwide lockdown. It's not being experienced in South Korea. Uh, uh, or, or any other location. So my, my good news is there was a hidden, horrible problem in Hubei province that required a draconian measure to shut off transmission of the virus. We sure better be ahead of that curve. None of the rest of the world should be as far behind that curve, even with this very contagious virus. And even if we're behind that curve, we don't have 300 million workers separated from their places of work. Right. John, David. <laughs> all right, all right. I got the mic. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I. I, th I think 
it's, it's really a human, it's a human problem, both when you think about demand risk and supply risk. If, if people aren't going to stores, if they're not going to stadiums, if they're not interacting with each other, the, 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 the demand risk can get, it can get severe very quickly. Uh, it has, there's no real geographic constraints to, to demand risk. It's very difficult to predict. It's very difficult, therefore, for retailers, logistics companies to, to plan for that. And I think that's going to be very disruptive because it, it's going to go up and it's going to go down. And one thing that supply chains hate is variance. And there's going to be a lot of that, a lot of volatility. And that's, that's on the demand side. And you can think about that in, in, in Italy is going to be different from other European countries. It's going to be different in the US. The supply side, again, there are complexities to that. Because even if there are factories in China that are coming back online, are the workers in place to move goods between the factories to the ports and the drayage? And is China producing the finished goods, or are they providing raw materials for goods to be finished in other countries, or vice versa? So where we see the epidemic spreading beyond China, South Korea is a good example where you have certain areas that are essentially in lockdown, where factories are being closed. A very significant percentage of South Korea's automotive industry is, is impacted. You have Bangladesh, almost all of their raw materials garment manufacturing comes out of China, will people pay for expedited air? Won't they? Whose responsibility is that? So the knock-on, this, this ripple effect that you're talking about, it gets very complicated very quickly, and, and, and the workforce is at, is at the middle. Every, every point of connection, they have workers that need to do something, and if people aren't in the right place at the right time, if assets aren't in the right place at the right time, the supply disruption is significant and will continue to be significant for a period of time. Whether, how, how and when we recover from that will depend on how much cash a company's got in their bank or where they sit in the supply chain, what they make and where they get it from. Yeah, so, so John, we're here at, at your conference with the industry that makes things move. How is, how is what you just heard from Phil and David, how is that affecting our materials handling industry folks? Yeah, so, so just uh, one back to, to, yeah, uh, to question. Please. So as I think about um, the China and where it's headed and where, where it's coming out of, uh, of the curve, so to speak, the, the one thing that I think about further is if the Italy situation moves into Europe and moves further into Europe, uh, that, is, that is something that would be in the back of my mind if I had uh, a supply chain set up in Germany, for example, or France. Is, does, does, is it contained in Italy or does it start to move? And then, uh, and then hopefully in the US, particularly on the West Coast, uh, there's things in the West Coast going on. Could you imagine if the West Coast ports suddenly were affected? So it's just, you know, it's this ripple effect that we don't know where it's gonna end and where it's gonna stop. We see that the how China has reacted and, and we kind of have a sense of, of the difficulties that we face because of that. but. If Italy, it's contained to Italy, you, you know, it, it's going to affect a lot of people who are there. But if it moves further, it could be interesting. So, so to answer your question, from you know, from the supply chain, uh, you see all the different products and the and uh, that are on the floor, and and really, once the material starts flowing, that's where the supply chain will kick in. It's the flexibility to be able to scale, to be able to handle the this this ripple coming through. 
that's where uh, the equipment will really be helpful. And you, you know, it's um, you think about you know facilities and factories, and what would you do differently if your parts aren't here, but then suddenly they all show up? You know, what if a month's worth of parts all show up at the same time? What do you do? And how are you going to handle that? And how are you going to work it through? So I think in the U.S. with the supply chain that's set up. As long as we keep it contained in the U.S., we'll be able to recover and follow that, that ripple through with, and be able to handle it. Uh, John prompted something that I've not said how, out loud, not even to my wife, so this may be a dangerous thing to try on you. But um, my, my, um, I, I was starting to pretty seriously uh, watch what was happening in China back in uh, late January and started reaching out to my supply chain network in the United States, uh, checking and so on and so forth. And uh, frankly, a lot of denial, a lot of what are you talking about? Uh, um, but, but then I would say by early February, mid-February, real engagement by supply chain uh, uh, professionals, uh, at least in the space that I tend to work in, which is pharma and medical goods and grocery and uh, consumer packaged goods and things like that. <clears throat> what has been amazing to me is they said they were having a hard time talking to their C-suites. They were seeing signals. They were, they were worried. They couldn't talk to their CFOs, CEOs, and executive VPs to get the attention they felt like was, was necessary. I don't think they had your software set, David. Um, and so, so then what was remarkable, I, I come out of venture capital when I was a young man, and the last... Um, the last week, CFOs and CEOs that I haven't talked to in 20 years were on the phone. They had not been paying attention. My judgment is that's why the financial markets went as crazy as they did, because they were surprised by something they should not have been surprised at. Their supply chain folks knew it was happening and knew it was heading here. They had the flows. Even if they didn't have the detail that your software provides, they had a sense of the flows that were not coming. They had the procurement reports, but the C-suite wasn't paying attention. So, so, Black Swan, predictable surprise. Oh, Kathy, you're just, you're just pushing buttons. I am, I am, I am. If anyone tells you that this was a black swan, say shame on you. <laughs> 5,000 years of human history and biological forensics that can go back before that, this recurs and recurs and it recurs. I survived the 57 pandemic. I know it looks like I survived 1918, but no, I didn't. <laughs> but my bloodline survived the 1918 pandemic. This has been talked about, this has been researched, this has been anticipated, this has been the object of Hollywood movies. It's a predictable surprise 
it's not a black swan. And shame on us, we're, we're, we're selling ourselves short and we're not holding ourselves accountable to recognize that this was entirely anticipatable. So if it was, if we could have predicted this, not I, I want to adjust between okay. prediction and anticipation. You can stand up. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> prediction suggests that one of us could have said that this was going to appear on December 12 in the Wuhan market, and it was going to have this kind of... Uh, no. I'm sure David is working on being able to, 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 to do that. But... I don't believe that we're at a point yet that we can have that kind of prediction. Right. But we can have the kind of strategic anticipation. And we can, certainly, we can certainly give our CEOs and CFOs a lead time that begins in December instead of mid-February. So that goes towards kind of the conversation around mitigation, right? If we can give them some information how do we help them mitigate the challenges? Either one of you guys want to take that? Um, well, I, I, I'll answer that by just comparing two companies. They're both in the same industry. They're both tier one suppliers to automotive companies. One of them put systems in place to map out their supply chain following the tsunami in 2011 that, that happened in Japan. Another terrible human tragedy hit the automotive industry very hard, and a lot of companies coming out of that started saying, well, we need to understand what does our extended supply network look like, and we need to understand what is, what is happening to it. And that company, we have been talking with about, about this event since the end of last year. They've been working out what they need to do, where their inventory is, and discussing that with their clients and, and their partners so that th their resilience goes beyond their four walls. So whether or not the pandemic could have been predicted, this is a company that was ready for it because they were ready for this. They were ready for a typhoon, they were w whatever it was. So the advice isn't worry about whether or not you can predict the pandemic. The advice is assume something bad is gonna happen and, and plan for that. And in doing that, and in setting the systems up that you use to, to respond to something like this, think about how that can be valuable in the daily management of a supply chain, not just for a black swan event. So when people talk about predictive analytics and prescriptive analytics, as we all love to do at the moment, unfortunately, in very general terms, this is a very specific use case in terms of companies that are using predictive and pre pre prescriptive analytics to understand risk on a daily basis in, in their companies are the ones that are better prepared, have been better prepared to respond to this event. And they have gained a very clear competitive advantage out of this. It's a terrible, a terrible occurrence. Meanwhile, we get called by another tier one automotive company a week ago saying, what can we do about this? The answer isn't it's too late, but there's a lot of things that are much harder to do now than if they had been planning for this or something else weeks, months, e even years ago. So, and there are risks that are predictable. So weather events would, would yeah. be an example. So 
you can predict certain events, you can be ready for any event, and if something like this happens to a tier three supplier, you still have weeks to respond to it. It's not that the, the shelf is empty the moment that the factory closes. So wherever you are in that supply chain, there is still time for you to respond. But knowing about it, understanding it immediately is the key to being able to respond. So, so John, you ran a multinational uh, organization. What, I mean, what are your thoughts about what, what David and Philip shared? Yeah, so, so I, can give, uh, I can give an example that kind of, and I don't know if it relates to everyone in the audience, but it's something, something to kind of get you thinking about. So imagine a company in Europe that uh, consolidates all of their shipments for global distribution out of one large distribution center. Okay, so think about that. And uh, think about one day when that distribution center is shut down for a certain reason. And, and to put the, um, the systems in place and the visibility in place so that you can access all of those individual suppliers out of different countries globally to serve your worldwide market probably is not a bad idea, at, particularly in the things that are going on. But, um, but it, that's just kind of one example of the way to look at things. And, 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 the, uh, and also the, the full visibility of your supply chain. If you don't have full visibility now, you probably should hurry up and, and find out what you can do. Where are your parts? Where are your access points? How can you uh, move around if you get uh, a disruption in any part of the chain? So that's, that's some of the things that if I was in, um, in the position I was in before, uh, serving the North American market with a heavy supply chain from Europe, those are the things I'd be looking at. All the different countries, where, is my where are my materials, where do they lie, how do I access those and have complete visibility. Um, and some of those things, it's not, you can start that process without a whole lot of systems. It's mm -hmm. just reaching out and saying, what happens if? So mapping and diversification in analytics. Yep. Anything to add there? Well, I think one of, one of the things we, we've seen, we, we, we always see, but I think a lot of these things are being shown in an extreme sense right now, is the difference between having having good data and, and not having good data. There's, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of anxiety, and in cases like this, Data is critical. Good data that can be trusted is, is critical. And we're by and large being asked for data in two categories. One is, the problem is, there's too much noise. There's too much data. Just give me, just literally give me a daily summary of what is happening across the world as it relates to this outbreak. So that's one, one category, which is, in many ways, is it's a time saver. It's a, it's a way for a company to focus their efforts and coordinate themselves. The second type of data is what is happening at this particular point on the globe. Is this warehouse open? Is this port open? If not, when will it be? And that is, that is tough to get hold of. You've really got to have essentially boots on the ground or at least partners on the ground that are willing to share data. And, and in that sense, having a, having a network like that and business partners that are prepared to share data is a, is, is a much more effective way of getting real-time grand, tr grand truth data than relying on, on government sources that might either have a, uh, a different incentive, they might have a, a, a lag in terms of the, the, the timing, or just be too high level 
for somebody in, in a business sense to be able to react. Yeah. Bill, John, anything? Yeah. This may be getting too much down in the weeds and we should just talk about this after this <laughs> session, but um, I absolutely, what I think we're all saying is don't wait until the gun is pointed at your head. Uh, start thinking about this, mapping it out, analyzing it well, well ahead of time. If you do that, I would make a distinction between data sharing, information sharing, and knowledge sharing. Um, a lot of data is proprietary, and uh, it, it's very, very helpful in uh, your particular supply chain, but when you look at the whole ecosystem, you may not be able to get the same fidelity of data across your whole, whole ecosystem. That's where the uh, networks, uh, uh, the human networks the, uh, become as important as the signal intelligence. The only adjustment, I think I'm just sort of putting what David and John said in a little bit different words, maybe the only adjustment I, I would put is while I'm a great believer in those informal human networks and the relationships, the knowledge relationships that that can provide you, I always like to have a data test case to compare it to, even if it is sort of the crappy government data that uh, D D David was referencing. Uh, no, I did. Yeah, may the record, may the record, may the record show that I was making the pejorative comment. Um, but, but that way, when if you have very detailed, high fidelity, proprietary data that you've been looking at regularly to optimize your system, and you have these knowledge networks to really inform your strategic view, and then in real time, you can can pull on some other contextual data that is non-proprietary, you're beginning to put in place circuit breakers to stop you from doing something stupid under the gun. John. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna paraphrase what he said and, and don't put all your eggs in one basket. How's that? Is, um, is, and where the baskets are, know where the baskets are if you have them spread out. So I, I think that is, um, I, I was talking earlier to um, to a fellow from Gartner, and, and he said he said to me, which was inter interesting perspective. He said, "Boy, did it take this to get us to this next step?" And and we've been talking about supply chain diversification, risk management, all these things for quite a while, and now suddenly it's the topic that's top of mind, and people are saying, "Boy, we really probably should have been done uh, done that in the past." So. So that's something, you know, as you take forward uh, out of this, it, it shouldn't be, this too will pass, I believe. Uh, this too will pass over the next months, but we should take the learning from this and we shouldn't find ourselves back in this position when the next uh, yeah. epidemic or whatever, with the predictable the event happens. Predictable yes, yeah. that's right. Whatever the next shock is. Can I, ju I just yeah. wanna jump on one of the things that Phil said about signal intelligence. And it, it, it's an important clarification. Um, and I'll, a quick shout out to, to DHL here. So DHL actually after the tsunamis in Japan was the company that incubated Resilience 360 in one of their global innovation centers. 
to help them and their clients with, with exactly this type of an event. What is important about what, what the military calls human and SIGINT, human intelligence and signal intelligence, it, it, it's important to understand the difference and, and how you need both. So in this particular respect, we're looking, for example, if we want to understand the flow of uh, cargo around the world, we're looking at sensor data to see where ships are and where they're moving, and that is, it's, it's real time, it's ground truth, but it doesn't, it tells you the what, it doesn't necessarily tell you the so what. And so the boots on the ground, you know, the strategic partnership that we continue to have with DHL allows us to speak to somebody who's standing on the port and can say, yeah, the, yeah, the ships are here, but they're not unloading. Or people are here, but the port isn't open. And so to have a combination of real-time sensor data that you hear more and more about, IoT data, and it, it's, it's, it's very good for certain use cases, but you've always got to have that the human element, either to say, this is what is happening on the ground, or to interpret the data that's coming from sensor signals and, and things like that. So you, you've got to have both to understand what's happening in a, in a situation like this. So they've just talked at you for 35 so minutes, 30 minutes or so. What questions do you have for them? I'll start with Mr. Solomon. up, Mark. Oh, there you go. The, the tier one auto supplier that did it right, did they act after the tsunami? And can no. you describe what they had in place for this situation? I mean, did they diversify their, their sourcing? What, what did they do specifically to get, to get the market share that you described? Yeah. So that, the, the question there was the tier one supplier that I, tier one auto supplier I was talking about. What did they do differently? And I, I would say there's there's two sides to the answer there. One is one is what I'll call the operational operational strategy. So thinking about uh, the network, where suppliers are, how many suppliers they need, and thinking about inventory, driving towards a just-in-time model, but being able to essentially risk adjust that just-in-time model. So a just-in-time without being risk-adjusted is its a risky thing. Uh, the other thing that they did is uh, really on, on the, the supply chain visibility side to make sure that they had visibility to the network so that they could understand who are their suppliers, who are their tier two, tier three, tier four suppliers so that they could, they could look at disruptions from the outside in to say, I know that's a tier four supplier, and I know there's a disruption there. And, it, and also to, to look at goods that are moving through the supply chain. So not just the static, static assets, but also the assets that are moving. And, and to have more focus on that, the closer in you are to the point of value creation. Well, in, in this case, the value creation is the production line in Detroit. So if I have a disruption in my inbound domestic US, that's going to be a bigger problem for me than a, a logistics disruption between a tier four and a tier three supplier. So to be able to map that out and understand, when people talk about visibility these days, in our industry, that often what they really mean is real-time visibility. There's a sensor on a truck and I know where it is. When, when, when we talk about visibility, we're talking about that and static assets, and not just my network, but my partner's network as well. 
And so they did two things. One was around entire network visibility. The other one was having the right data to be able to say, what's the right balance between just-in-time, lean inventory, and, and resilience? And resilience doesn't necessarily have to mean more inventory. It may just mean more agility, being able to switch from one thing to another, whether it's a supplier or distributor or a lane or a node. So the, the future of supply chain resilience is agility, not necessarily more inventory. Next question. You guys shy or I just can't see because of the lights. Okay, well I've got another one for you guys then. Um, we talked a little bit, Phil, you talked a little bit about some of the measures that China had taken, uh, government interventions, social distancing, the extreme kind of lockdown uh, activities. I mean, did that, did that work? How can government engage and, and best help? And I think, you, we're gonna have, I think we're down to sharing a microphone here. I'll start, everyone will have an opinion. And that's the reality. We're too close to this event. They're all opinions in my judgment right now. The big controversy that uh, in my judgment is uh, unanswered and probably unanswerable in real time is uh, how essential the very deep lockdown in China was to stop uh, virus transmission as effectively as they did. For what it's worth, uh, this non-epidemiologist uh, 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 opinion, it probably was absolutely necessary for Wuhan City, Hubei Province. Uh, I would say you could make a case for that in Guangdong Province, just outside of Hong Kong. You start seeing places where, especially retrospectively, you know, now we have a luxury that, that the Politburo did not have in late January. But retrospectively, there are plenty of locations like Shanghai where maybe these very tight controls that were put on a very large populace may have killed more people there than the virus killed. And the economic turmoil has just been enormous. And so it gets to some risk analysis and some risk choices that probably are always going to be debatable and certainly, at least in my judgment, cannot be answered with confidence right now. Did that answer your question? Well, yes, and. Okay. So today the governor of New York sent the National Guard to surround, to, to support an area that has been highly affected by the virus. Is that something that we think we'll see in the U.S.? Do we think we'll see more of? And do we think that every governor in every state is going to act differently? Uh, yeah, so uh, two very quick answers uh, on that. Yes, we're, we're going to see skyrocketing cases here in the United States. We're at the beginning of our process. We cannot 
anticipate if this is going to be, I, I don't think it's going to be like Wuhan, but maybe it'll be more like Pongdong. Uh, it's already looking worse in the United States than Shanghai. So it's going to get worse than it is now probably over the next two, uh, uh, two, two, two weeks. Um, again, my, my judgment in real time from a distance, all those caveats down, uh, it seems to me pretty clear that one of the worst things, the real mistake that the Chinese made uh, and I think there are plenty of people from the Politburo on down that have already begun recognizing that this was an er error, is they allowed their network to fragment much more than they needed to, especially their transportation network, but it, it, it backed right up into their demand and supply networks. They were not being network savvy. They, they it, 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 instead of being sure that they had quarantine zones that that, that, that had uh, arcs, lines, supply chains in between those nodes. It was just fragmentation. And the people that were in, given the power to create those fragment, fragments, like, like county commissioners and sheriffs and all sorts of hyper-local authorities, were not necessarily network savvy either. And so is, is that a threat? Yes. If you're in the grocery industry today, you have already seen threats in the United States by hyper-local decisions. So I'm going to, we could talk about that one for a long time, but I'm going to ask one final question of, of you guys, and that is, what should businesses be doing now? We talked about what you need to know now. What should businesses be doing today? Yeah, so so from, from my point of view, uh, I would say go back understand your supply chain, where the items are, and what options you have on the what if. I would look at what if scenarios of the, as this thing still moves across Europe possibly, across the west coast, uh, uh, and just look at your supply chain and just step by step say, what would I do if this stopped and if this broke? And, and that will, I think, answer a lot of questions about what risk you have, where you stand, where you're headed going forward. Um, but I think that's what I would do first. Um, if you have a plant that you are so dependent on, you might buy a little more inventory, but I'm not saying make a rush, but something to consider just to keep the flow going. I would also go and find out where the inventory lies in my entire stream, uh, entire work stream, both at even, even at the dis distribution level, if you have products that are go through distributors, to know where your where all your products are, those are the things that I would be looking at. All right, David, one minute or less about one minute or less. Yeah, <laughs> I know better. Not too well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think um, so. So three things. Uh, the first is people like us love to sit up here and say, "Ah, oh, you should have been planning for this a year ago," and it's not very helpful to say that. What is helpful is to say that the types of things we recommend, in other words, mapping out supply chains and things like that, can and should absolutely start today as part of your immediate response to this. So what you're talking about there, that needs to be very tactical and, and, and hyper-local right now today, is the first step towards the sort of things that we talk about and see as, as, as best practice. So th this isn't a binary thing, this isn't a, you know, 
react today and then start your planning tomorrow. It's a process, it's a single process. So everything that you do today in line with what John just said is part of a longer journey that we hope you'll all now be on. The second, I would say, is, 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 is look for good information. And between us, we can, we can help direct you there. Um, we, we, put out, you know, we put out almost a daily report that sums up what's going across the world. So we got copies of this if you guys want to grab them on your way out. Normally, we do stuff like that for our clients. But for this, it's open to everyone. And number three, it's it, be, be safe yourselves, families, co-workers, and, and, and every different echelon that you connect to, there are things that you can do individually and as groups to be safer. And that's, it, it's good personally, but it's good business, and you'll end up with stronger, more loyal relationships internally and externally. If, if you're thinking about that in the right way, practically every day, every hour. All right. So thank you guys for coming. Please join me in thanking our panelists and their contact information is available for you. Wash your hands. <laughs>